Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in Amsterdam. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of Mexico, which is a fascinating topic, so stick around for that. But first... We're going to try to do something from the news pretty quickly, and the data point there is $1 trillion, which is the threshold of market value that the AI chip company NVIDIA crossed on Tuesday this past week. The trillion dollar club getting a new member today, NVIDIA becoming the first ever chip stock to reach that milestone. The stock surge has been triggered by the artificial intelligence boom and NVIDIA's recent... But with the generative AI hype not showing any signs of slowing down, NVIDIA may be the biggest winner of them all. That puts it in a pretty exclusive club, alongside the likes of household names like Google, Apple, and Amazon. And if it seems NVIDIA came out of nowhere, that's because, to some extent, it did. Its value has essentially tripled since October, which is when a lot of public attention turned to the potential of artificial intelligence in the economy. The rise of NVIDIA has sparked discussion of whether it's now overvalued or maybe still undervalued, so we thought we'd try to dig in. Adam... I thought we could start maybe by discussing where exactly did NVIDIA come from? What exactly is its backstory? Is this another of the big Silicon Valley garage startup stories that we've heard about in other cases? I think so. I think it's a, you might call it a second generation version of that kind of story. I mean, the the sort of the mythic element is the meeting at uh, Denny's Roadside Diner in East San Jose that took place in 1993 between the key figures Um Involved in the firm, that's uh, Jensen Huang, who's a Taiwanese-American electrical engineer. Who, and then there's Chris Malakowski and uh, Curtis Prem. I mean, I call it a, a second-generation story because all of these guys had long track records at what, by that point, were already you know powerful, established firms, um, including LSI Logic, AMD, um, IBM, Sun Microsystems. And though they, you know, in the way of these kind of stories, started out with $40,000 in the bank, uh, they really rapidly acquired the backing of major Silicon Valley venture capital firms like Sequoia Capital. So the, the ecosystem exists and these people are making a play within the ecosystem. Um, the, the sort of the clever idea that, that kicked it all off was that they would focus on, on graphics chips, um, which have particularly demanding um, calculative uh, demands. I mean, if you, I'm old enough to remember the day when a PC was a you know a big metal box supplied to you by IBM or somebody like that with a bunch of sockets in the back that you stuck specialist cards into um, for driving you know more demanding tasks like fancy graphics for a game. And this is where this is what Nvidia decided to focus on. And it's a clever thing to focus on because on the one hand it's a mass market, and on the other hand it's a mass market for a very demanding computational task. And that's really uh, the the niche that they've exploited and grown out of. They you know broke through when they got they got the um, the contracts to to put the chips both in the PlayStation Two and the the Xbox. Um, they 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 then established themselves by the 2010s as a as a major player in the in the in the industry as a whole. And and the the story moves on from them. By 2011, they have a they've settled a legal dispute with Intel and basically in the the tech sharing business with the incumbent you know the firm the US firm that really made the modern microchip industry so it's a it is a remarkable story but one that takes place within an industry that's already firmly established so to shift to some of the geopolitical questions that touch on Nvidia's rise 
Obviously, there's been a lot of talk recently about how high-end semiconductor chips are exceedingly difficult to produce and how there's an effective monopoly as a result of the manufacturers of those chips, which is exactly what makes export controls so effective of the sort that the United States has applied on chip exports to China. I was curious how this applies to NVIDIA. I mean, are the kinds of chips that NVIDIA is involved in making similar in that way? Uh, Yeah. Is NVIDIA also a kind of monopolist in terms of these kinds of chips? I think the crucial thing to understand about NVIDIA is that it doesn't make its own chips. So NVIDIA really is a design company. It's a really kind of an engineering services firm. That's a kind of silly way of describing, but conveys the idea. They don't own what are called fabs. They're they're in fact what's known as a fabless firm. Um, And the fab that, that makes that makes the chips is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. They also do some business with Samsung, but it's TSMC that really drives this. So if you actually, you know, when we talk about the chip wars, what we're actually talking about is the connection between uh, NVIDIA and TSMC and, and ARM TSMC. Those are the, that's really the key node as far as the Americans are concerned. And, and what they produce together are these ultra high end, um, you know, incredibly powerful processing um, chips. We're not talking here about commodity memory chips, like the, you know, an individual NVIDIA chip for a, you know, a really high end application. These things run to $10,000 plus per chip. So you buy a set of them and you're talking about, you know, an AI, you know, a system, you'd buy maybe eight of them together and, you know, you're talking $100,000, $200,000 per chunk. Um, so it's that kind of it's that kind of uh, production we're talking about. It's mass production, so it's not, these aren't one-offs, um, but we're not talking about bulk commodity production, at least at this stage, in, like we would be if we were talking about memory chips, something like that. And these are really at the ultra cutting edge. So these are, you know, the, the nodes are uh, four nanometers, three nanometers. So we're talking, you know, quasi molecular level um, uh, applications here. And just to clarify, when we we're talking about these export controls, the CHIP Act, et cetera, that the United States has passed, is this essentially applied to anything that comes out of these Taiwanese factories? I mean, is it sort of just like a wholesale, anything that comes out of these factories faces these kinds of regulations and bans, or is it really more targeted than that? I mean, it's crucially, it's American legislation, so it applies first and foremost to American firms. And the, the idea is to control the use of technologies that in broad senses belong to America or American entities. And that's that's the that's the mechanism. Mm. So the fact that these chip manufacturing outfits like Nvidia are are based in the U.S. That's what gives the U.S. the leverage. Really, um, mm. it then applies flat out diplomatic pressure to, you know, uh, Dutch outfits like ASLM, which make the which make the um, the lithography machines, which without which no one. But that then is a government to government interaction where you really literally have the you know White House calling Dutch um, um, diplomats in and trade officials to discuss national action. So I wonder now, from China's perspective, is it in a position to create its own artificial intelligence economy? If it is in fact cut off from Western tech companies like Nvidia, I mean, are we in danger then? If that is in fact possible of creating two incompatible technology blocks? Is that the shape that our, you know, big vaunted Cold War that people like to talk about in Washington, is that the shape this might take? Not a kind of financial trading block situation like the original Cold War, but more technological blocks facing off against one another? 
I mean, right now, what we're still seeing is a system that's interconnected, but it now has hierarchical steps in it. So Western AI developers can access NVIDIA's A100 and H100, which is the even more advanced option, um, whereas the Chinese are being supplied with the A800 and H800 uh, chips. Um, the crucial thing here is that what the, the United States is doing is limiting China's access both to the speed and uh, calculative power of chips, and then the other thing that they're trying to regulate apparently is the capacity of chips to communicate with each other. So when you do these absolutely massive AI applications, you can't do it all on one chip. So you have to build entire systems of hundreds of thousands of these chips all acting together. And so then communication between them, which you might think of just simply being at you know, the pace of electricity. Well, in fact, actually, the 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 connections uh, are, are, are hugely crucially uh, important for how rapidly data can be transferred. So the chips which the Chinese can access, the 800 series chips, can, can transfer data chip to chip at the speed of 400 gigabytes a second. The flagship H100 chip, the NVIDIA's really absolute top of the range, can do 900 gigabytes per second. So what we're what the West is doing, what the United States is doing, is just rationing the processing power available to China. So the processes are broadly speaking, the architecture is broadly speaking the same. Um, the the much of the software structure that sits either embedded in the chips or on top of it is also remains still at this point broadly speaking similar. Hmm. But the Chinese and what the Chinese are having to do, and this is what they are doing, is is work up um, algorithmic and and various software approaches to to either by brute force just overwhelm the physical limitations of the inferior kit that they can now access or by clever algorithms bypass and, and optimize, if you like, the efficiency of the algorithmic calculations so that they can overcome the physical limitations. I mean, for firms as rich as the big Chinese platforms, you know, they don't, you know, that ultimately these, these applications are so crucial that if it costs twice as much, they're still going to spend the money. Um, but an even more efficient mechanism is, of course, to just build smarter AI software, which does the processing in a more efficient way, even with less efficient uh, uh, chips. And that's the kind of race that uh, we're seeing right now. Another strategy that Alibaba and Beidou have both been engaged in is like rationing the stocks of high-end A100 uh, uh, NVIDIA chips that they actually have on hand. So they've built stockpiles of these chips and they allocate them only to the AI, the very highest-end AI um, um, processing systems where they're competi competing directly with the West. So for domestic applications, for things like TikTok and so on, just the sort of, you know, the optimizing the algorithms of these social media systems, they use inferior chips. But when they're trying to replicate ChatGBT, they actually use the limited stockpile of the last generation of, of NVIDIA chips they actually have on hand. That does seem like two different ways of thinking about technological development. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know if algorithms themselves are considered technology, but it seems like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the risk, of course, is that in a sense, um, by a kind of Darwinian selection process, by restricting China's access to hardware, we force the pace of their algorithmic development. So finally, I thought I'd turn back to the company itself and some of the questions it faces. And I guess I wonder, do tech companies have aspirations generally to be more 
vertically integrated to sort of draw on some business lingo myself. I mean, do firms like Google or Apple or Amazon try to make their own chip hardware, for example? Or would it make sense for NVIDIA to go into developing the kinds of games and other AI applications that use its chips? They absolutely do. Um, This is the basis on which, for instance, Amazon and Google compete business to business for cloud services. What, What Amazon can tell its clients, and it has the dominant business, is that it has chips optimized by its own in-house microchip design team to provide the very fastest cloud-based services. And Google actually is struggling to keep up with them. So there is an arms race within what you might think of as cloud service providers to actually create the chips which are optimal for the specific applications that they're doing. So in a sense, everyone is heading down the route that NVIDIA mapped in the 90s, which was to say there's not just a general purpose chip for all applications. Instead, what we need to be thinking about is designing chips specifically for particular applications. And so, yes, that drives this. On the NVIDIA side, NVIDIA, I mean, again, this is like, you know, so so far out of my comfort zone. But I mean, it's fascinating to read about it just to sort of get a sense of the lingo and the map here. But yeah, I mean, the, the games development business is such a giant ecosystem now. It's such a huge market that NVIDIA has a kind of, as I understand it, a kind of studio lab game software design software backed up by massive data centers so that if you're in the business of developing a game, you can sit in this space where essentially quite a lot of the you know underlying processes have been done for you already. And then you you know, you create your characters, you create your narrative, you create your 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 worlds within this pre-existing ecosystem so you don't have to do everything from scratch over and over and over again and that is being provided by nvidia who are really making the the chips but the the applications are so extremely demanding Hmm. in terms of computing power that that's the efficient way that's the efficient way to to do this right so it's a bit like taking your design project you know in some some very old-fashioned world to a machine shop and saying i want this thing you know milled this way you don't start by saying, well, right, well, to mill this, I would need a milling machine. And so then I'd need to design a milling machine. Like there's somebody who's got a milling machine and knows about milling. And so you say, look, I need this thing cut this certain way, this this groove to turn to a certain direction. Can you do this? And they say, well, yeah, of course. You know, we, we did a groove that went the other way for somebody else two weeks ago. So this is how we do this. And I think it's that kind of ecosystem of innovation and development that NVIDIA is absolutely providing. So that's a sort of a step into the space of, of application design out of the hardware. Got it. Okay, so Nvidia has its own kind of middlemen there. Uh, to, to Middle space, yeah. like a whole yeah. thing. Yeah, it's called the Omniverse and a variety of other things that I'm sure I'll get wrong if I if I, uh, <laughs> step I, uh, any deeper into this. I, I also can't fact check you here in real time, uh, but maybe uh, listeners will uh, yeah. quibble with some of the some of the uh, uh, finer points here. Uh, all the better, because I'm sure this won't be the last time we're talking about chips and uh, perhaps NVIDIA as well. So we do need to take a break here, but we will be back in a second to talk about Mexico. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is 15, as in the 15th largest economy in the world, which is a description that applies to Mexico. It's been a while since we did one of our country profiles. Uh, we've 
covered several other places in the world. And Mexico came as a suggestion from a listener, Lauren Uren. She made the suggestion, in fact, multiple times. And so we thought we'd take it up. And it's just a reminder to listeners, if there are ideas you have that we should cover, definitely do reach out. We're always open for ideas. It may take a little while before we get to it, but we are listening to the suggestions that you leave behind for us. So Mexico. Adam, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about friendshoring or nearshoring. These are all kinds of new buzzwords that have come up as uh, kind of responses to the end of globalization as we've known it. I wonder, you know, it seems if these were real phenomenon, this kind of friendshoring, nearshoring, bringing manufacturing back towards one's geographic region, if these were real, it strikes me that Mexico would be the big winner given its proximity to the United States. But is there any noticeable change in Mexico's economy that would attest to that? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a crucial dimension, a question that's been very hotly discussed, really, for the last couple of years. I mean, it's worth saying just how important um, trade with Mexico is to the United States, you know, just in general. Um, depending on the quarter, there was a news headline that went around saying that Mexico was America's largest trading partner in the in the first quarter of this year. Um, it's always in the top two, three, four, right? So the big trading partners are Canada, the EU, uh, Mexico, China. Uh, and so Mexico's in the big leagues of American trade. From Mexican point of view, obviously, America is overwhelmingly the largest trading partner. This is a huge deal in economic terms. It really matters to both sides. We're talking flows of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and Mexican trade and F FDI has been buoyant. Um, in recent years, um, we dodged a bullet with, you know, Trump really quite serious, I think, about dismantling NAFTA in 2017. He was dis persuaded not to do that by massive lobbying. Instead, we've ended up with the, the successor to NAFTA, which is the USMCA, um, which was signed in the summer of 2020. And um, there is certainly signs of interest and investment um, uh, from the American side. Um, but we haven't seen, and I think it's just, you know, this has to be said, we haven't seen anything remotely like a break, uh, a dramatic shock. This is this is true, frankly, of the nearshoring, friendshoring story in general. So this doesn't discount the fact that there may be fundamental shifts underway, but I think we should expect it to be slow. We should expect it to be slow because the supply chains are extraordinarily complex. Part of their complexity is that they're multi-country. So some, at least, of, of Mexico's trade with the United States actually channels Chinese and, and Asian goods into the American supply chain. The absolutely key industry for the cross-border trade between Mexico, the United States, and Canada, in fact, as a whole, is the automotive productive system, which is better thought of nowadays as a sort of a regional network in which the parts of cars the chassis, the engine, bits of engines, bits of the interior cross back and forth across the borders of the USMCA several times. And, and that system is both inertial, it has huge continuity, but also currently undergoing massive upheaval because what we're witnessing after all is a shift from the internal combustion engine model to by the 2030s, I think we all expect a, a fundamental shift to the EV, the electric vehicle, and we don't really quite know how that's going to work out. So there's a lot of inertia here. There's a lot of complexity, the sexual differences. And then there's the politics. And I think this is really underrated on the American side, and it's kind of crucial to fill this in, which is that 
Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, you know, better known as, as AMLO, is the first Mexican president, probably in you know in decades, to be kind of opposed to to globalization, to oppose to America, uh, Mexico's excessive dependence on its on the United States. I mean, he he comes from a generation of Mexican leftists coming out of the seventies that actually blame the social ills, the inequality, the dysfunction of the Mexican society and the Mexican state largely on their dependence with uh, the United States. Um, and though Mexico isn't part of BRICS, um, the non-aligned, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa f- uh, configuration of the early 2000s, you know, as far as AMLO is concerned, it kind of belongs in that group. And, and you know, a test case here is, in fact, AMLO's position on the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, so you know, the, the, the question that's really up for grabs, in a sense, is whether relocating production to Mexico under its current administration and a successor to, to AMLO is really friendshoring at all in any simple sense of the world. And this is a question that's that's being asked from, from both sides. So the Mexican government um, voted in the United Nations to disapprove, to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but was ostentatiously neutral on, on the exclusion of Russia from the Human Rights Council of the UN. So it sided with Brazil and has refused to join in sanctions. I mean, Mexico's a party, the governing party, in fact, launched a Mexican-Russian friendship committee weeks after the Russian invasion. Zelensky has spoken to the Mexican parliament at the invitation of the opposition, an appearance which was then disowned by the, by the, by the Mexican government. The relations between Mexico and the EU right now are absolutely in a deep freeze over this. So, you know, it's, it's Lula and Brazil that really hogs the headlines on this issue. But that's in part, I think, deliberate because the United States likes to downpedal and downplay exactly how difficult this issue is. And in fact, the Mexicans do too. It's part of the ballet of Mexican-US relations that you don't do linkage. Um, the, the much more significant question really is the longer term development of Mexican Chinese relations, because the friendshoring, nearshoring paradigm sort of presumes that Mexico belongs in the US camp. And that is, in a sense, underwritten by the fact that China's trade and investment relations with Latin America generally have blossomed in recent years, in recent decades. They've, they've extraordinarily escalated. You can't tell the economic history of Latin America in the last decades without reference to China. And that's not true for, China, for Mexico. But it's a kind of open question as to whether or not that's going to be preserved in future. There are clauses in the USMCA, the successor to NAFTA, that actually require members, so Canada, the United States, and Mexico to notify each other if they enter into privileged trade partnerships with quote-unquote non-market economies. So basically that's thought to be a kind of safety catch, which means that USMCA cannot permit privileged relationships with China. It's thought that behind the scenes, the Trump administration let it be known that if Mexico, for instance, accepted the offer of a one belt, one road deal with China, there would literally be sanctions from the American side. But this this question is hugely is hugely sensitive, I think. And there's no issue more sensitive in American-Mexican-Chinese relations now, or certainly American-Mexican relations by way of the proxy of China, than the issue of fentanyl, which has sort of raised the stakes in the longstanding struggle between Mexico and the United States over drugs to a whole new level. 
Yeah, this is a fascinating issue, uh, fentanyl at the sort of nexus of the economics and politics of the U.S.-Mexican relationship. I mean, increasingly, from what I can tell, you have Congress involved in heated conversation about Mexico essentially being China's backdoor to the United States by means of these illegal drugs like fentanyl. I mean, I think I've even seen news reports of officials in Congress talking about military intervention in Mexico, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, we tend to think of the anomaly in the current moment as being, you know, the war talk over Taiwan uh, that that clashes with the fundamental dependence of the West on trade and financial relations with China and our, all our reliance on Taiwan for semiconductors. But in a sense, you know, when you focus in on it, the the relation between Mexico and the United States is every bit as weird. Like on the one hand, as we're saying, we've got this huge, inertial, incredibly important trade relation. And not just trade, of course, but human relation. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But like million, tens of millions of people with intense connections across this border, immediate neighbors. And on the other hand, you know, talk in the US Congress, especially one has to say this is a partisan thing from the GOP side, encouraged very much by Trump from the wings, about military action, no holds barred military action against Mexico. I mean, broadly speaking, America's northern command has officially declared that it believes about one third of Mexico is ungoverned, quote unquote, which presumably sort of opens it up as this lawless space in the imagination of American decision makers. And 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 the GOP, both in the House and the Senate, have, have repeatedly discussed the possibility of special forces operations, of of bombing runs, of the use of cruise missiles. Um, memoirs from the Trump administration suggest that Trump, as president, actually asked the DOD to make you know serious official assessments of the possibility of using missile strikes against the against the against the drugs uh, the drug barons and and all of this is now supercharged by the chinese connection on fentanyl which essentially has caused a large part of the foreign policy establishment in in washington dc or at least some specialists to to seriously discuss the role of you know ccp backed organizations communist party backed organizations in at least enabling this 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 drug running it's an incredibly dangerous, lethal, you know, historically freighted relationship, which also sits on top, exactly as it does in Taiwan and the South China Sea, of, a, of, a, of, of an economic connection, which is nothing short than fundamental to the way in which a large part of American business is set up. And it, it cuts both ways. It's truly a fascinating story. I think we should come back to this. But you know, one of the one of the fundamental problems if you're a drug lord is you're generating a huge amount of cash income, right? Because these desperate Americans who are buying the drugs are, are pumping cash. So what do you do with the cash? How do you launder it? Well, it turns out there's another lot of people who are desperate for dollars. And that is Chinese, wealthy Chinese who want to get money out of China. And since 2015, there are, you know, huge, uh, essentially capital flight controls in place. So there is now a flourishing ecosystem on Chinese social media, which the American secret services find very difficult to access, in which brokers essentially allow uh, Chinese invested in um, getting money out of the country, interested in getting money out of the country, to pick up the cash proceeds of the drug deals and use them for investment in the US. Now, you know, I, I can't, on the, you know, in this current moment, assess the quantitative scale of this, but you can see the sort of picture that's being drawn. And this is, you know, this has all of the components of a highly explosive, jarring disjuncture within a key nexus of globalization, which doesn't get anywhere near the attention 
the the Taiwan Chinese confrontation does, even though it involves highly one sided, of course, and this is the difference speculation about violent intervention from the American side. So, you know, from both sides, both on the American side and I think on the Mexican side, the question really is, is this a relationship that can in any reasonable sense be described as friendshoring at this point? So maybe it could be useful to rewind the timeline of it back to the neoliberal heyday when NAFTA was first passed. This is the free trade agreement that involves Canada, the United States and Mexico. Uh, it had its origins in the early 1990s. And yeah, I wanted to uh, ask about the kind of visions involved uh, in this uh, agreement at that time. I mean, obviously, you know, NAFTA now has a successor agreement that you mentioned from the Trump administration. But and, and it's since the 1990s, there has been a free trade zone among these three countries. Um, but I wonder if it's evolved from a mere free trade zone into something more yeah, substantial, thicker, a, a real, true single market. I mean, what barriers still exist to Canada, USA, and Mexico becoming something more analogous to the EU? I mean, do American retirees, for example, already think of Mexico as a lower cost place to move? I, I think many of them do. And one of the largest expat communities in Mexico is Americans. Um but I mean, the short answer to your question is, is, is you know, hinges precisely on that point. I mean, it, it will become something like the EU when it has the free movement of people like the EU. It, it'll be something like the EU, not when American retirees can consider Mexico as a cheap option, but when Mexican pensioners um, can choose to reside with their families in California or Texas or wherever, right? That's, that's, that's when it'll be something like the EU until it's that it, it's something more analogous, you might say, to the EU's relationship with Turkey, which we've talked about um, in previous episodes, right? It's a, it's essentially a commercial trade relationship with a very large underpinning in migrant labour, which, however, remains very considerably constrained by legal regulation and an asymmetric migration regime, whereby you know rich people move from the north to the south to enjoy the sun and the cheap cost of living, and the much lower income um, um, citizens of Mexico are highly constrained in their ability to access the United States, despite the dense web of family connections that run across that border. Um, so that's one element. That's, if you like, the, to, to use the phrase, unfortunate in a way, bottom up element, right? The, the people, people, people to people level. What's also really striking from a European point of view is how thin the USMCA is as a political organization. I mean, it really is a commercial, trade-based system. Um, it's run by, administratively, it sits within, responsibility sits within the trade ministries of the three signatory countries. Um, in part, I think this that's in part because it's unpopular. You know, all of these are societies with strong strains of um, economic nationalism, the US, Mexico, Canada as well, to a degree. Uh, and so rather unlike the EU, where if you like the free movement of trade of goods and, and of people and money is a sort of at least capable of being integrated into a popular language of the creation of ever closer union, really these three countries are quite quite uncomfortable in part because of the overwhelming dominance of the United States within the system and the huge gradients of, of income across it. And so, in a sense, it's convenient that it sits in the trade departments because, you know, no one then has to take too much responsibility for it. I mean, trade, Trump wanted to kill it. Trump, in fact, did terminate the, the leadership level meetings, the so-called North American leadership summits that had taken place within the 
early context of NAFTA, they were interrupted in 2016 and resumed under the Biden administration. But it is, again, for a European kind of staggering to think that you could have a continent like this so evidently integrated with such thin, at times incredibly poor, political relations. I mean, it makes the relationship between Hungary and Brussels look positively friendly. To return to the issue of movement of people, the United States has gotten really accustomed to talking about Mexico as a place of transit for migrants uh, who tend to now start out in Central America. But do Mexicans themselves still migrate to America in large numbers? Are remittances, for example, still a significant financial factor for, for Mexico? And what is Mexico's own potential for absorbing large numbers of immigrants? Yes, absolutely. Mexicans do continue to migrate to the US. Um, there's a flow back and forth, in fact. I mean, and that's really the, the new novelty of, of the current era is not that Mexicans don't continue to migrate. They absolutely do. But in some years, and indeed over several years back to back, the reverse flow of Mexicans leaving the United States and returning to Mexico can sometimes outnumber that. So what we're beginning to see is a kind of circulation um, specifically between 2011 and 2021, we actually think that the number of Mexican-born individuals living in the United States fell by a million from you know, 11.7 to 10.7 million. So we're talking about a very large group of foreign-born Mexican people in the United States, which is now more of a sort of circulating population. Um, recently, as a result of the aftermath of COVID, and um, subsequent dynamics, inflation in the Mexican economy, we've actually seen a surge of legal Mexican migrants to the United States. Um, in 2021, according to those data, Mexicans were the largest number of new arrivals in the United States, um, larger than Indians or, or, or Chinese. Um, and they are a major recipient of green cards, again, in 2021, outnumbering both Indians and, and Chinese. They're also by far the largest group still of undocumented, unauthorized immigrants in the United States. Um, that's the stock. Um, with they, We think they account for about half of the undocumented migrants in the United States. Again, that's fluctuated over time as new groups have arrived on the scene. But in 2021, 2022, Again, for the first time in a while, the number of, um, you know, we count encounters. So essentially all you can count with illegal immigration is the number of people picked up on the border. And so then you take a sample of those. And um, in 2022, um, Mexicans accounted for the largest share of illegal migrants picked up at the border, the, 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 larger, the, the largest share that they have since 2007. So more than half. Um, so even though there is this dramatic flow of, of of migrants from Central America, Mexicans have recently outnumbered them. And as a result, yes, remittances are a huge part still of the Mexican economy. In fact, an increasing part of it um, as the Mexican-American community flourishes. Um, it's the largest single remittance flow in the world economy. Um, it's about 60 billion um, which reflects this extraordinarily important relationship between the United States and Mexico that, that just doesn't appear to have an adequate political form. It's remarkable. So yes, it's a 60 billion flow, person to person flow, which accounts for no less than 4.2% of the Mexican economy in 2022, according to data from The Economist. So one thing that has not come up in our conversation so far is uh, Mexico's fossil fuel deposits. I'm curious, what sort of oil economy exactly 
is Mexico. I mean, it seems to me like it's managed to be less dependent on its oil than other resource-rich countries. But yeah, how exactly has it managed to do so if that's the case? Well, it's tempting to say if you ask what sort of oil economy Mexico is, is to say that it's a has-been uh, or a kind of a has-been that now wants to return to a fossil fuel dependence, but in a very, very strange way. I mean, the, the story of Mexican oil is dramatic. A hundred years ago, a century ago, it was the number two oil exporter in the world. The Mexican oil was crucial for the allies uh, in World War One, for instance, absolutely crucial. Um, and after the 1970s, 73, 79 oil shocks, uh, Mexico really did become a, a huge global producer. It, 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 at its peak, we think that oil rents accounted for about 15% of the Mexican economies, about one in six pesos that were being generated. Um, in the oil boom of the early 2000s, when China's coming on stream and you know we see oil prices rocketing to new highs, Mexico was the world's sixth largest oil producer. Oil production peaked at 3.6 million barrels a day, of which about half was being exported. As recently a decade ago, oil accounted for 7% of the Mexican uh, economy. But since 2014, 2015, as a result, on the one hand, of the collapse in oil prices at that moment, and then the running down, the dwindling of Mexican oil production, the share of oil in the Mexican economy has fallen to about 2 to 3%. Now, where it really matters is in state revenue. At its peak, oil accounted for 25% of Mexican state revenue, at which point you can really say, you know, this is a, in some senses, an oil state, an oil regime. Um, but now it's down to 15, 16%. So it's one source of income amongst many. Mexico never developed an offshore, you know, an offshoring strategy, an effective oil fund strategy. So, you know, the Mexican economy felt the full brunt of this of this giant roller coaster of oil revenue and then collapse. I mean, over the period from 2000 to the mid, you know, 2014, 2015, I mean, Mexico earned in revenue maybe half a trillion dollars um, and in oil revenues and spent it all. So it lived really hand to mouth. Um, it never established. This doesn't mean that some of it didn't go on investment. It just flowed into the regular budget. And today, Mexico hedges its oil revenues in really interesting ways. It's one of the largest forward contracts for oil in the world. Um, Mexico has become, as you'd expect, highly sophisticated in playing the futures markets, and it secures uh, a you know a guaranteed revenue stream from its oil. But it's at a much lower level. What's really fascinating is that AMLO wants to change all of this. So he really is a product of the Mexican oil industry culture. Um, as party boss in Tabasco from the 70s onwards, he was really shaped entirely by the memories of the good years of oil. And he wants to return there. And the result is a, is a strategy, an energy strategy for Mexico, which has obviously amazing solar potential, which is astonishingly, and one has to say it, I think kind of retrograde. It's a kind of retro energy policy, which is basically organized around Pemex, the national oil company. So finally, I wanted to ask about the Mexican state and whether it has itself proven to be a hurdle for Mexican development. I mean, has it proven itself capable of overseeing further development in the country? One thing I came across in researching for this segment is that the Mexican government doesn't really invest very significantly in its own country. And I wonder, is that related to a sort of broader governance failure, you know, a deeper kind of 
failure to achieve a monopoly of force vis-a-vis the drug cartels in Mexico, for example. I think there's a lot um, that, that, that sort of swirls around this issue, and this is something we should come back to. I mean, I, I, I'm really pleased that we've done this segment because it does seem to me that this is a hugely, um, well, it just doesn't get the salience and significance it has, especially for a show based as we are in, in, in the US. Um, but I want to I want to reiterate this point that like there's no innocent discourse here. They, you know, this is a highly political. Uh, it's a it's a country with a highly political, uh, highly contested polity. It's a it's a country that's been a test bed for various types of economic development, um, that, that developmentalism over time. Um, it's hard to disagree, of course, with the general contention that more investment is better for development. I think. I mean, there are some people who go really hardcore on this, but it's hard to disagree with that. It's important, I think, not to underestimate what has been achieved in Mexico. It is a society with near universal literacy, with um, life expectancy that's actually quite close to that of the United States. It was converging very rapidly until the last ten years or so with the United States. It has near universal uh, provision of electricity. It has a growth rate, which in fact over the last 20 years is not unlike that of the United States. So the the, the gap has not significantly widened. Um, it's just not as rapid as, say, other emerging markets like Turkey, but then they tended to start from a relatively lower level. The really fascinating thing, and maybe this is the kind of the point to to wrap on, which adds to the somewhat somewhat bamboozling quality of Mexican politics in the current moment, is that is that it is indeed a, a left-wing administration that is not engaged in large-scale public investment, certainly of the type that we would think of as being growth-enhancing. There's been public investment, but it tends to be in things like prestigious oil refineries, which most people would think of as white elephant projects, as dinosaurs. But the really fascinating thing is that this is justified, and this was absolutely manifest and explicit during the COVID crisis, where for instance, the policies of, of Brazil and, and Mexico massively diverged with a right populist government in Brazil driving very large scale social spending and AMLO refusing to do it. And, and, the, and the IMF chided Mexico's notionally left wing government for failing to invest heavily enough and to spend heavily enough in social protection and poverty relief during the COVID crisis. I mean, this is a topsy turvy world that we're in. And a key element of that, however, I think is AMLO's sovereignism. The lesson that he learned from the 70s and 80s is don't contract too much debt because debt exposes you to crisis. Crisis exposes you to outside intervention. It won't be in the form of military intervention. It will be in the form of economic colonialism, if you like. And then you will lose the capacity to control your own destiny, which is how he understands the you know, the, the Mexico's um, path out of the 1980s, which he sees, broadly speaking, in terms of decline and deterioration from what for him are the golden age period of, of, of 70s economic and social nationalism. And so if that's the case, then what you need to do is to run a very tight fiscal ship. And if you've got a huge booming oil and gas industry, like Russia has, for instance, then you can still have quite considerable state spending. Because Russia pursues a strategy which in some ways is quite similar, also running a very tight fiscal and monetary ship through the 2000s um, in the aftermath of debt crises of the 1990s. Um, but Mexico doesn't have the oil and energy base, um, in part because of failure to invest in it. And so you see this tightening corset. So it's a very it's a very fascinating story, but we, we should really return to this and 
through a series of questions on Mexican-U.S. agricultural relations, which are very, very fraught and complicated. The the auto industry, there's so many different facets to this, not not to mention the extraordinary um, politics of this relationship. Yeah, it's been a real quick tour of a fascinating country. Yeah, I think we could definitely return to aspects of this. So all which is to say, thanks for the suggestion again to Lauren Oren for making it. And um, yeah, we do need to end here for now, but we will be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZ at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.